0: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. may be seated. Once upon a time, in Episcopal churches following a high Anglo-Catholic tradition, a sermon was not considered essential. In fact, it was quite acceptable for the celebrant to say after the reading of the gospel, let the words of the gospel speak for themselves, and then sit down for a few minutes of quiet reflection before continuing on with the liturgy. I think today's gospel lesson seems to be one such passage, so we'll just let the gospel speak for itself. Uh, You know, I can't really get away with that anymore. The... That changed with the 1979 prayer book. Sermons were required. (laughs) Today's lesson seems so familiar to us that I truly doubt that you have any need to hear another sermon exhorting you to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. As Episcopalians, it is well-grained within us. We know to the core of our faith that we are to love God and to have love of our neighbor. But we also know that truth and fact, we can fail miserably at doing exactly that, especially when in the frailty and finitude of our human existence, we find our anger towards God and our anger towards our neighbor blotting out any shred of the love we thought we had that often, not always, but more often than not, bit by bit, we can find our way back to a place where we once again can find within us a love that reconciles, a love that heals, a love that restores that which we thought had been so irredeemably broken. But what about the other commandment Jesus gives us? For well, you know, there is actually a third component, a third condition that's in this great commandment. It appears earlier in Matthew's Gospel, in what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. That's the sermon in which Jesus lays out the essence of the nature of the kingdom of God, beginning with the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who... Those Beatitudes that speak of the blessedness to be found in God's sovereign reign over all creation... In that seminal sermon, Jesus tells all those who have gathered, gathered to hear his words that they had heard it said, You know that line, right? You hear what they said? They had heard it said, Love your enemies and hate your neighbor. Or hate your enemy. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. <laughs> we know what we're trying to get to, right? <laughs> Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And immediately Jesus goes on to say, I tell you, Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you that that you may be children of your Father in heaven. In Luke's recounting of the same sermon, he gives us a fuller version of Jesus' exhortation. Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. However, What does one do with this when one's enemy seeks your complete annihilation, the complete eradication of who you are and of all that you represent? For me, as a Christian, as a priest, and this morning as your preacher, this question has grown more urgent in these last weeks, not just only because of Hamas's attack, but because of the continuing military response of Israel to that attack as every entire neighborhoods in Gaza are being obliterated, and two million people and thousands who have died are enduring the consequences of their democratically elected government's actions. It's nuanced, but you've heard it right. Hamas is, indeed, the democratically elected government in Gaza. That election, unlike our own, has never been contested. As horrific as this ongoing war is, I think it is still too close to hand and too fraught with competing claims of justice, morality, and equality to even begin to unpack it this morning, especially in a sermon. So I invite you to step back from whatever emotional response you may be feeling at this moment, and remember that at this moment, the war between Hamas and Israel is only one of 27 active wars that the Council for Foreign Relations is monitoring around the world. Here's just a sample, a very short sample, of what is happening in our world. The people of nagorno karabakh an Armenian populated enclave inner side, have been driven out of their homeland by horrific military action. That's over 300,000 people who have been attacked and are being expelled from their ancestral home. All without warning, by the way. It's been one year, eight months, and six days since Russia invaded Ukraine. Over half a million Russian soldiers have died in this war. Nearly nearly 100,000 Ukrainian soldiers have died, and civilian deaths have been documented be nearing 10,000. There are armed conflicts in Yemen, Sudan, and Miramar. There is an ever-increasing tension in the South China Sea between the US and China, as demonstrated just the day before yesterday, as a Chinese fighter got within 10 feet as they were aggressively threatening an American B-52 bomber, flying over international waters between Japan and China. I don't need to go on because as the New York Times columnist, David Brooks, sums it up in Friday's opinion piece, it's not necessary to know the particular facts about any global conflict. Because all struggles are part of the same struggle between the oppressor and the oppressed. This morning you and I do not have to label who is the oppressor or who is the oppressed in this 75-year conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians this morning, but as Christians, as people of faith, as people who seek to live out the inculcation of the word of God in our lives, it does behoove us to take just a few minutes to ask the question, in a world where hate erupts into such horrifying violence so that the sanctity of human life is unwittingly sacrificed for political, economic, A religious gain, what in the world can it mean for me as a Christian to love my neighbor who is in truth of fact my enemy, my next door enemy? As I wrestle with these questions, I return to the work of the Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf. In his preference to his book, Exclusion and Embrace, he writes about an encounter he had with Jürgen Moltmann after he had finished a lecture. Now, if you don't know Jürgen Moltmann, that's perfectly okay. It's really something that seminarians have to wade through. But I will tell you this about him. Moltmann is considered, one of the, by some and by many, actually, as one of the most erudite theologians of our times. Someone who, if you're a youngest theologian like Miroslav was at that point, and you had just finished a lecture in which you knew that Moltmann was in the audience, you probably would find your stomach clenching as he stood up to ask you a question. The question that Moltmann asked Miroslav is this Can you embrace a Chetnik? Bolt goes on to write For months now, the notorious Serbian fighters called Chetniks had been sowing destruction in my native country, herding people into concentration camps, burning down churches, destroying cities, and so much more. And I had just argued that we ought to embrace our enemies as God has embraced us in Christ. Can I embrace a Chetnik? the ultimate other, so to speak, the evil other? I knew what I wanted to say, No. I cannot. But as a follower of Christ, I think I should be able to. Miroslav's 300-page book that follows that preference is his self-professed struggle to answer that question, both as a theologian, but also as a human being. For me personally, I don't know if I could embrace my enemy if I actually had one. I live in a nice bubble of polite people, and trust me, when they know I'm a priest, they get even more polite. (laughs) They seem to have forgotten that I can't really excommunicate them or send them to hell, but sometimes (laughs) they still think that Shanna and I can do those sorts of things. I don't know if I can fulfill Jesus' command to love my enemy, to bless them as I will bless you when you come to the altar rail, to pray for those who literally hate me. But like Miroslav Volf, I think I should be able to. For others, I've done that very thing. Let me close with one example. It comes from Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who in a 2007 Vanity Fair interview told the world about Amy Beale. Now it's a bit of a long quote, especially for a sermon, but I would ask you to indulge me, because I would like the Archbishop's words to be his own. I was telling students recently about a young American woman, white woman, Amy Beale. She went to South Africa as a Fulbright scholar. One day she gave some black friends a lift in her car to take them home. In one of the townships. When she got to the township, she was met by a horde of youngsters who belonged to one of the political groupings that had the slogan, One Settler, One Bullet, meaning that they wanted to get rid of white people, more or less. They saw Amy Beale. They got her out of her car. She ran, fell and they started stabbing, and they killed her quite gruesomely. These young people and their ringleaders were arrested and ultimately sentenced to long prison terms. Then they came to our Truth and Reconciliation Commission to apply for amnesty. Amy Beale's parents, white Americans, Peter and Linda Beale, came all the way from California. They went all the way to Cape Town where the amnesty application was being heard. They had the right to oppose the granting of amnesty. Do you know what they did? They got there and they said, we support these young people's application for amnesty. Now that is mind boggling, but that was not the end. After these young people were granted amnesty, then Amy Beale's parents founded the Amy Beale Foundation in Cape Town. Part of its purpose was to rescue black kids who would be victims of violence in the townships. And they employed the two guys who were the chief murderers of their daughter at that foundation. Can I love my enemy? Just as importantly, as a priest and pastor, can I with any shred of spiritual or moral integrity ask you, my sisters and brothers, to love your enemy? In all humility, I do. Just as I ask it of myself. For you know, I think it is, as W. H. Auden writes, we must love one another, or we die. We must love one another, or we die. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.